Transit Church. How's everyone doing today? We're good? Awesome. It's hard to see some of you if you're smiling or not with your mask on, but I'm going to pretend that you're, you're smiling. Um, if I haven't met you yet, you're tuning in with, in with us for the first time on the live stream. Welcome. And uh, my name is Pastor Nick, and we're honored that you're here with us, whether uh, online or in person this morning. We're going to be continuing, as that bumper showed, our sermon series going through the book of First Peter. A friendly announcement before we uh, uh, begin, our fearless leader, Pastor Jeff, is getting a much-deserved and hard-earned break in the month of August, so make sure you keep him and his family uh, in your prayers for uh, just, just nourishment and refreshment, that this would just be a sweet, uh, sweet blessing and time, and, uh, and if you feel so inclined, Jeff hasn't paid me to say this, but feel free to drop Jenny's off at their house if you're feeling up to it. Um, if you need anything at all in the month of August, please don't hesitate to, uh, to reach out to Jeff once September rolls around with anything you need at all. Okay, just kidding. Reach out to me. I'll be, I'll be at the helm in August. That was a joke that landed flat. Anyways, with that said, that is a beautiful segue to read God's word uh, out loud together. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. So let's read this out loud together. Verses will be on the screen. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for us who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gathering of your people. We thank you for uh, the beautiful gift of your word, just the revelation of, of who you are and all that you've done uh, for us and for your people to redeem us out of darkness and call us to your marvelous light so that you can now dwell in our midst, that your presence can be in us and among us. So we thank you for your presence with us today, that you're a God who isn't deistic or distant, but you're a God who, who wants to be with us, that where we are is where you want to be, and that's all your grace and your love and your mercy to us shown in Christ Jesus. And so we're here today to magnify the name of Jesus, uh, the living stones gathering today to worship the cornerstone who has built us up into the temple of God, the place where his glory dwells. And so, Jesus, this is for you. Our time today is for you. We're here because you have first called us and you have first loved us. And so uh, would you come, Holy Spirit? We thank you that you are here today. And I just ask and invite you to, to come and work in our hearts. Would you reveal to us just the awe and the wonder of your goodness and your kindness and your posture towards us? And we pray this in your name, Jesus. 
Amen. All right, quick question. I'm going to need some participation on this one before I start my talk here. Who likes building forts in their houses? Come on. We're, we're, yeah, I see some. Oh, come on, adults. You know you like, to build, you like to build forts, too. The kids don't just need to raise their hands. I see one, two. Yes. Okay, I got a, a couple of people who like to build forts. Everybody else is lying because building forts in your house is awesome. So I have two daughters who are four and two, and one of our favorite uh, pastimes in the Mudrisha home is building these awesome forts. And when we set about building the fort, we're going to make sure that we have all the right materials, right? Like I'm talking every chair, every couch cushion, uh, every pillow, every blanket in the house that could, you know, every blanket or towel or whatever. We're knocking on neighbors' doors to say, hey, we're building a fort. Can we borrow some blankets? You know, just, just all the supplies you need to build this fort. And then once we get in the fort, you know, we're cuddling. It's kind of small. We're giggling, all this stuff. Usually we're yelling at mommy to come and find us and all this stuff. And, and here's the deal. Why do I, as a father, really enjoy building forts? Is it because I want to just build something and, you know, uh, or, or is it because I just want a good sermon illustration to use for one of my sermons? Maybe. No, it's not that reason. Uh, the reason why I like building forts is because I love hanging out with my kids, right? And that fort that we build together is that kind of sacred space where daddy descends and meets his kids on their level, Right? We get close. We dwell together. I don't see that that fort in the Mudrzo house is that sacred place where I, out of love for my kids, I kind of condescend and I meet them at their level and not demand that they meet me at my level because where they are is where I want to be. That's a father's heart towards his towards his kids. And what we learn in our text today, you know, Peter talks about the spiritual house of God that we are living stones built on the, the, the foundation of the cornerstone, being built up into the place where God's presence dwells. And so what we learn in our text today is that God is working on a building, right? And why is he working on a building? It's not just because he wants to build a building. It's because he loves his people, and he wants to dwell in their midst. And this theme is a mega theme throughout Scripture. So we got a lot of ground to cover. I'm going to take us all the way from Genesis to Revelation, but my mind was blown today in this office. Jeff is gone, so I have about three hours to preach this morning, so I hope you guys are uh, okay with that. Um, Just kidding, Jeff, if you're watching. That's not going to happen. Uh, But here's the deal. This is the mega theme in Scripture, is we see that God's revelation, that God's revelation of himself is this, is that he is seeking to dwell in the midst of his people via the sacred space of, we see first in the garden, the tabernacle, the temple, the church, and then the new Jerusalem. From start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation, this theme of God pursuing humanity to dwell in their midst, calling a people out of darkness to himself to dwell with them is kind of the overarching redemptive theme of scripture. So today we're going to overview this theme because I think it, I think it sets the foundation for a lot of what we're going to be talking about in first Peter. And so this is kind of a two-part message where today I'm going to talk about God's posture towards us and how we, the church, are in a physical building. Church isn't something we do on Sunday morning. We, the church, are the place where the glory of God dwells with man. The church is. That's where the new temple, right, where his glory dwells. And so next week is going to be kind of talking about, well, then how do we respond, right? And in 1 Peter 2, Peter talks about how we're a royal priesthood. We're to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. The way we relate to God is worshipers. Uh, What we're going to look at in John 4, Jesus says that the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So we're going to talk about that next week, and today we're going to talk about uh, the reason why God is in the business of, of meeting humanity in these sacred spaces, because he is a God who wants to dwell in the midst of his people. And so this is my hope today, is that we would just leave here in absolute wonder and awe of who God is and his relentless pursuit of us, and that where we are is where he longs to be. So quick disclaimer, quick disclaimer, 
God did not create humanity because he was lonely and needed some buddies to hang out with, right? Because if that were the case, God would not be all-sufficient in himself. Therefore, he wouldn't be God. He would need to create something to be all-sufficient. If he was lacking something intrinsic in his nature, he would not be God if he created humanity because he was lonely and needed friends to hang out with. But see, what's even crazier when we understand that is even in light of that fact, in light of that truth, is that, yes, God doesn't have an intrinsic need to fellowship with us and to call us sons and daughters and to dwell with us, but yet he desires to do just that. And and has gone to agonizing lengths to make this possible. Agonizing lengths to make this possible. He doesn't need us, but he created us for himself to dwell in his midst forever. And where do we first see this place take place? Is in the garden, right? In the garden, Genesis 1 through 2, what do we see? We see God's original intent for humanity. Creation is formed from the words of God. Vast expanse of the universe enters the scene. Earth is created, and in the earth, what does God do? He plants a garden. And where does he put humanity? In that sacred space, in the garden. The whole earth wasn't the garden of Eden. On the earth, God planted a garden. Look at Genesis 2.8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So in a way, the garden of Eden was kind of the first father's fort where heaven met earth, that sacred space where, where the, the holy God would dwell with his humanity that he created to dwell in fellowship with him and worship him as God. And this is exactly what we see, is that humanity was created for relationship with God. God's walking and talking in perfect fellowship with Adam and Eve. And that's the original tent that we see, is God's people in God's place, enjoying God's presence in perfect harmony with nature, with creation, and with their creator. But we all know how the story goes. What happens? Sin enters the world through Adam and Eve's rebellion, and, and then what happens? Right there in Genesis 3, they're thrust out of that sacred space. And so now sin enters the scene. The curse of sin uh, uh, just spreads like a virus throughout the face of the earth, and now humanity is separated, separated both from the presence of their creator and both the place where he would meet with them that sacred space, the garden, where they would dwell in the midst of God and God would dwell in their midst. And why, why would they have to be thrust out of the garden? Because, because here, here's, here's the deal. A thrice holy, perfectly righteous God cannot dwell in the midst of that which is antithetical to his nature, which is sin and evil. Which is sin and evil. So sin, sin and holiness are oil and water, right? It's, it's antithetical to his very nature. And, and so and so, for instance, going back to the fort illustration, if, if I want to descend and dwell in the midst uh, of my kids, but they were to go and roll in the mud, you know, a mud pit for two hours, and then come and jump in there with me, I still love my kids, but, but given the proximity of our dwelling in the midst together, what happens to me? I become, me once clean now becomes unclean. Me once holy now becomes unholy because of, because of kind of sin in the camp, right? Now, if we were to turn up that illustration a trillion times, a trillion fold, when we talk about the absolute moral purity of our creator, then it's a whole different story, right? It's a whole different story that he just cannot. It's antithetical to his nature, his being. He can't dwell where there is sin and evil and that which is antithetical to him. So when sin enters the scene, it creates this horrific, tragic separation from the very person we were created to be in perfect fellowship with. That's why sin is so tragic and so horrific. It creates a separation between the very person we were to dwell with forever. 
banishes us from the presence of God and that place where we dwell with him. And so that dilemma now enters the human story in Genesis 3. Will a holy God ever dwell in the midst of a sinful, unholy humanity again? That's kind of the dilemma that takes place. And now we're going to fast forward over a lot of the biblical narrative. We're going to fast forward to Exodus. I need your help on this one. Uh, There's no wrong answers. Actually, there could very well be some wrong answers to this question, but... What gets all, if, if, you, if you've seen and, and you know, read Exodus and seen some of the movies, by the way, if you've seen God and Kings, the most recent movie on Exodus, I am sorry, I apologize just on behalf of uh, you watching that and, and just that existing, because that was a terrible movie. But anyways, here's the deal. What gets all, when we think of Exodus, the story of Exodus, the book of Exodus, shout out what you think of. What's that? Charles, okay. Charles and Eston, Yes. Yes, exactly, yes. Let my people go, absolutely. Uh, so, so Moses standing before Pharaoh, I'll help you out. The bur- What's that? Judgment, okay, the 10 plagues coming, right? On Egypt, on Pharaoh, the burning bush, call it Moses, the, the, the exodus, the deliverance, God parting the Red Sea, parting the water, so all the people are set free and redeemed out of slavery, all right? So that, that's like, that's what we think of when we think ex- of exodus and taking people to Mount Sinai and then giving them the Ten Commandments, the covenant, and then, and then the story kind of stops there, kind of tapers off, right? And we forget that the story doesn't end at Exodus 25. There's 15 more chapters in Exodus and Exodus. And those 15 chapters are dedicated to the tabernacle. And so what we learn here is that the, the main focus of the Exodus, the Exodus was a means to an end. The Exodus wasn't the purpose in and of itself. Deliverance, redemption wasn't the purpose in and of itself. It was a means to a far greater end. What was the end? It was God redeeming a people, delivering them. So why? So he could dwell in their midst. That's what it was via the tabernacle. You tracking with me? Uh, Von Roberts has an excellent book. I highly recommend it. It's like a really accessible kind of short book. It's called God's Big Picture. It gives you a really good overview of the Bible. I highly recommend that being on your bookshelf just as a resource for you. Simple quote that he gives is this. The purpose of redemption is relationship. The purpose of exodus is is God dwelling in their midst. Exodus, and let's go to the text. Don't just take my word for it. Exodus 25, 8. This is after Ten Commandments are given. The, the covenant is ratified. The vows, the covenant vows are spoken to, from God to the people and, and the people back to God. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And the people respond and say, we will be uh, your people and you will be our God. And then what happens in Exodus 25, 8? Watch what the Lord says. And let them make me a sanctuary. Why? Because I want to dwell in your midst. That's where all this was leading. I want my presence to be where you are. Where you are is where I want to be, is where I want to be. And so then from Exodus 25 to Exodus 40, for the most part, he gives the details of the sanctuary, the tabernacle, the Father's fort, where the holy God is going to descend and dwell in the midst of his redeemed people that he has called out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's beautiful. Detailed instructions. Why? Why are these detailed instructions given? Well, holy God can only dwell and meet with humanity in a holy, sacred space, right? Kind of like we talked about just a minute ago. So strict protocols in the tabernacle and in the surrounding camp were to be followed. So we see the priestly office is established, the sacrificial system is enacted, and and this was God's grace to Israel because it kept them from dying the second he showed up, right? Right? Like all the details of the, the, the sacrifices and the priestly office, the mediators between God and man and man and God, this was God's grace. He says, I want to descend to where you're at. But listen, if I were to just show up on the scene, you all would be, would be flattened like a pancake. You'll die. 
where I had a professor talk about how what's unique about the new covenant community, uh, the, new, the church being the place where God's glory dwells, is that God dwells with us and we don't die, right? Because we're covered by the Lamb. We're going to talk about that in a little bit here. Um, so all that to say, how, watch how Exodus ends, right? I just want to, again, I'm going to kind of, we're, we're sowing here, and I'm just trying to show you how this is woven throughout all of Scripture. Exodus 40, 34 through 38. This is the la- these are the last verses, right? This is the last verse of Exodus. Then what happened? After the tabernacle was built, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, whenever, whenever the cloud was taken up over the tab- tabernacle, the people of Israel set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till day uh, that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all all their journeys. Uh, so, so what we see here, this is how the story of Exodus ends. This is, what, this is what everything you've seen in the movies was leading up to, was God dwelling in the midst of his people. That was the purpose of the Exodus, is God dwelling in their midst. And so this was, the book ends, and just on that note right there, it's kind of like a mission accomplished banner, right? I've gone to painstaking lengths, sent plague upon plague, parted red seas to bring you what? To bring you to myself, So you would be my people, and I would be your God, and I would tangibly dwell in your midst. You might be saying, okay, Nick, question. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. What do you talk about when his presence is in the midst of his people? What do you you mean by that? And so in Scripture, we know that God is omnipresent. Nothing escapes his his sight, his hearing. He is everywhere, right? And, And then at the same time, Scripture talks about his manifest presence. So we see his omnipresence and also his manifest presence when God shows up and he makes his presence clear and known, right? And so going back to the fort illustration, for, for COVID, when we were in Virginia lockdown, I was working from home, I was omnipresent in my two-story townhouse, right, with my kids. If I was upstairs in my makeshift home office in my master bedroom and the door was open, I, nothing escaped my, my hearing. If my kids were playing in the room, the monitor could be on, I could watch them on the video, hear them while I'm working on my stuff. Omnipresent right in my house. So I could be in the second story, my kids are on the, you know, bottom floor. But what happens, what happens when I manifest my presence in the fort? What, what experience do my kids get? A completely different experience, right? They, if they're downstairs and I'm upstairs, but I'm omnipresent there, they have a generic, they take it by faith, not by sight, right? That, okay, God is, God is with us, and, and, or my dad is with us, and, and he is here. But when I swan dive and squish into that fort with them, they all of a sudden have a completely different experience of who their God is, or who their father is. Sorry, this blasphemous here. I gotta be careful. Just extend me grace for the purpose of this illustration, right? All of a sudden, when I kind of manifest my presence in the fort, they feel my weight. They feel the father's weight. They hear his voice. They can maybe even sense his joy and his delight in their pre- in, in just being in their presence, right? They can smell his. It's a completely different experience, right? Completely different experience. I've heard it put this way, that God's omnipresence is God is everywhere, and, uh, and God's presence is, he, wow, he is, he is there, there, you know, like capital T-H-E-R-E. So uh, fast forward, we got to keep going here. Let's fast forward to the temple. Fast forward to the time of David and Solomon. The promised land has been taken. Israel is no longer nomadic, but now a nation state. And so this mobile tabernacle, that sacred space where God would dwell with his people, is no longer needed. So the temple now is built in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, Jerusalem, to replace it. So, the, so Jerusalem, the holy, holy Mount Zion, would be the place that now God would dwell with his people. 
First Kings, First Kings 6, 11 through 13. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this, what, house that you are building. If you will walk in my statues and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And 13, watch this. And I will do what? I will dwell. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will, will not forsake my people. God stayed true to his word. The temple is dedicated a couple chapters later in 1 Kings. And what do we see in 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11? As, you know, they're dedicating the temple in 1 Kings 8. Temple's built. Dedication comes. And this is what happens. God moves in. And when this priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. I love verse 11. So that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. In Hebrew, the word for glory is is kavo, which implies, which literally means weight, weightiness. When the omnipotent God manifests his presence in the tabernacle and the temple, guess what happens? You're pancaked, right? The priests are flattened on the ground because God kind of squished into the fort that his people had built him because where they were is where he wanted to dwell. So I hope you're tracking with this theme so far. Eden is created. God shows up to dwell with his people. Israel is redeemed out of Egypt. The tabernacle is set up. God shows up to dwell with his people. The temple is built in Jerusalem. The promised land has been taken. The temple is built. And then what happens? God shows up tangibly so that his presence could be in the midst of his people. Okay, this, we, this theme is woven, it's not a theme, it's reality, is woven throughout all scripture, which we're going to keep talking about here. But again, we know how the story goes. The people of Israel were not faithful to that covenant, and God's holy people did some unholy things, unrepentingly so, which we talked about in our Daniel series, which led to their exile, and the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar, by Babylon. And so again, the refrain, the dilemma that haunts the people of God was this, will God dwell in the midst of his people again? And if so, how in the world will that be made possible? Because that sacred space where he met with us in the garden and in the tabernacle and in the temple, that all failed. We need, it's almost as if there's this anticipation in Israel, we need, we need a new foundation to be laid, right? We need a new building. We need something to change that's not, that's not contingent upon us because we're failing and it's not God's fault that none of that worked out. It's humanity's fault. It was his people's fault that they chased after other gods saying we don't want you in our midst. We want these pagan deities in our midst, right? So much that they even offered sacrifices in the temple to those pagan deities. Could you imagine God's presence and you're sacrificing to, to demonic gods? And so we know how that goes. We talked about that, that in Daniel. And so what we see with our sins is that we're dead in our sins and trespasses, as Ephesians 2 talks about. We're with hope because we're without God and his presence. But how does Ephesians 2, that, that beautiful, beautiful passage, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, there's a transition. In Ephesians 2, we see some of the most, two of the most beautiful words in all of scripture, but God, but God, being, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, he gave us his precious and chosen cornerstone, Jesus Christ, to be the first stone that was to be laid in the new temple that he was building. Amen? 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 2, 6 says this, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He's quoting Isaiah 26 there. It's a messianic promise of what's going to take place in Jerusalem. And uh, notice here in 1 Peter 2, the building kind of construction lingo, cornerstones, stones, so on and so forth, spiritual house that we're all being built up into. And uh, historically speaking, the cornerstone was the most critical and important stone of the foundation of any building. It was usually one of the largest, most solid, carefully constructed 
stones, and once this stone was set, once this cornerstone was set, it determined the basis of every measurement in the remaining building as everything was aligned to the cornerstone. So with that said, if the cornerstone was off, everything else was off. So an imperfect or poorly set cornerstone leads to a shaky foundation and a structurally weak building. Everything in the building hinges on the cornerstone. And thanks be to God, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church. God's spiritual house is now built on the sure foundation of the perfect righteousness, the once and for all perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ and not our own holiness, not our own righteousness, not our own sacrifices. It's all the work of Jesus, all the work of Jesus for us, the perfect cornerstone. And so what that means for us church, as massive implications, is that we never have to worry about the foundation failing or the fort collapsing. It's not contingent upon our works anymore. It's the blood of the lamb that was slain, his perfect righteousness imputed to us to make us holy, to make us righteous, right? Sure foundation. The Father's fort is never going to collapse. Again, it'll be structurally sound for all of eternity. For all of eternity, it'll be structurally sound, right? Stone upon stone. It's not finished yet, right? We're in the already but not yet. Jesus Christ has ushered in this new spiritual house. He's torn down the old temple, built the new house, the church, the place where God's presence dwells. And, and, and right now, we're getting a foretaste of what's to come. We, the people, hosting the presence of God. And so that's what's unique about the new covenant house of God is this church, is that the new covenant spiritual house of God is a spiritual house, not a physical location. So we worship God in spirit and truth, not, in, not, on, not on Mount Zion, you know, at the temple. And this is what Jesus says in John 4, 21 through 23. By the way, I highly encourage you to watch the Chosen series. It's free to watch on YouTube. It was actually really well done, really phenomenal. There's a beautiful scene. I think it's the last episode where Jesus has a conversation uh, with the woman at the well. So this is John 4. This is Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and he says this. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You see what he's saying there? He's saying there's coming a time when the worship of God won't be confined to a physical location. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. He's, looking, he's talking to the Samaritan. We're saying the hour is now here because you're looking at the cornerstone of this new spiritual house that's going to be built. This cornerstone is going to be laid in Zion. When the, so the hours is coming and it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father, I love this, I love this. We're going to talk about this next week, about our response as worshiping our Father who's redeemed us, called us out of darkness into marvelous light. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father is pursuing people to worship him. That's the story of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is God's pursuit of worshipers, of sons and daughters to call to himself so he can dwell in their midst and they can respond to him in love and adoration and devotion and worship. So what Jesus is saying here in John 4 is that this, my coming atoning work on the cross is going to nullify the old brick and mortar system of worship and usher in a new era where worshipers of the Lord would have, will have access to God's presence whether they are in Judea, Samaria, or to the very ends of the earth. To the very ends of the earth. And you might be saying, well, how does Jesus atoning work on the cross, his crucifixion, give us this access to God? How does it kind of tear down the old physical system of worship and usher in a new spiritual system of worship? Well, let's go to Mark 15. Again, just a lot of scripture coming at you, so just, just track with me on this theme. Mark 15, 37 through 38. 
And Jesus uttered, there's Jesus on the, on the cross, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. For the sake of the intents of our sermons, that's the cornerstone being laid in Zion, right there, that moment. Jesus breathes his last, boom. This Isaiah 26 prophecy is fulfilled. The cornerstone is set, the cornerstone is laid in Zion of, of a new temple that God was building, a new spiritual house. And then what happens next, church? What happens next? Verse 38, the, the cornerstone is laid, and then the curtain of what? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. A cornerstone is laid of a new foundation, and then the old is immediately made obsolete, right? And then, and then so the veil, that veil, that curtain in the temple is what separated the most holy place of God from everything else in the temple, right? That was the sacred holy place where God would manifest his presence, the holy of holies. No one would ever kind of sashay into the holy of holies. That's why the priestly office was there. It was holy. And then the veil, Jesus Christ tears the veil, and often we understand that as Jesus has given us now access to the holy of holies, which, yes, of course, it's true, but there's a flip side to that veil being torn as well. Now, God's presence is loosed out of the Holy of Holies and gets poured out on his people in Acts 2 in the upper room. You guys track when you see that theme? Acts 2, Pentecost, what happens? The veil is torn, giving God access to us and us access to him, his presence, his presence. There's two sides to that coin with that veil tearing. Unleash the presence of God across the face of the earth. So we no longer worship him in Jerusalem, but across the globe today, there's billions of living stones gathered, filled with the presence of God, worshiping the cornerstone who has brought them together. Again, you still want to be like, well, Nick, how does Jesus' death make this possible? Here, here's, watch this. Follow, follow with me. Jesus' sacrificial death, the full and final sacrifice for the sins of mankind, is what has torn down that which has once separated us from a holy God. That veil represents our sin, which creates a separation. And Jesus' death, his sacrificial once and for all sacrifice, tears that veil. Why? Because it is in Christ alone that sinners are made holy. It's in Christ alone that sinners are made holy. And now, a couple questions for you. Guess who resides in holy spaces? Our holy God does. Our holy God does, right? And guess where our holy God wants to dwell? with you and me. So if Christ has made you holy, the blood of the lamb has cleansed you from all your sins and righteousness. You are the redeemed of God. Then guess where the holy God dwells? Inside each and every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has made a way for God to dwell in us and among us for all of eternity. No, no priestly office needed, no sacrificial system needed. Christ is, the, Christ is sufficient the once and for all sacrifice is sufficient. The veil is torn. And that's what we see in Acts 2 is a fulfillment of Joel 2, right? God's presence, his spirit being poured out upon his people. Why? Because God wants to dwell with his people. And where sin sought to divide and separate us from God, Jesus died and made a way where there was no way. So the precious cornerstone is laid in Zion. And what once separated God from us is rendered completely torn and defeated, church. That's the best news in the world, Right? That's why everything we do, we, we hope to glorify and magnify the name of Jesus today. There's no other name by which man is saved. There's no other name by a sinner is made holy. There's no other way. Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth of life. No one comes to experience God dwelling with them forever except through me. No one comes to the Father except 
through me. So that cornerstone is laid, but once separated us from God, is rendered completely torn and defeated. And so now the building of God is taking resonance in every human heart that has been washed and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. First Peter 4, 5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And when Peter there is saying living stones, he's talking about the fact that each individual believer, at the point of their trust in Jesus, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so collectively, all of us are now kind of the Father's fort, God's spiritual house, the place where he dwells and meets with his people. And again, weaving this theme throughout Scripture, look at Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a, a what? A holy temple in the Lord. The church is the holy temple of the Lord. Verse 22, I love verse 22. In him you also are being built together into what? Into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is the dwelling place of God, the place where his glory dwells, the place where his presence is present with his people. That's what's unique about the church. It is not something we do on Sunday. It is not a, a, a brick-and-mortar building. It is the fact that the, the church is the temple of God, the place where his presence dwells. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Do you not know that you are God's temple? and that God's spirit dwells within every believer. Individually, we are the living stones, and collectively, as we are stacked upon the cornerstone, the perfect pattern of the, the cornerstone, we are being built up into this beautiful temple where we're gonna be dwelling in the presence of God forever, but he gives us the guarantee, the deposit of the Holy Spirit as a foretaste of what we're going to be doing forever. It's beautiful, and, and church, I'm gonna slowly wrap up with this, is that I believe that this, this truth, this reality, should stun us and stagger us. And the reason I spent so much time on this is because often we can kind of get lost in kind of theological jargon. And the, the kind of the main theme that I wanted to hone in on, I felt the Lord lead me to this morning, was to really show us the Father's heart for his people. I got news for you, church. Some days I don't want to dwell in my midst. You know, you tracking with me? You ever have a day like that? You're kind of tired of hanging out with yourself, right? You just need a break? Guess who doesn't want to break from us? The Lord. Guess who, guess who wants to be with us forever? Our precious Savior who died, who died to dwell in our midst, to make it possible for God to dwell with us, in us and among us right now. That is, that is staggering. That is staggering. If this was all God's idea. It was his heart's desire so much so that Jesus would die. He would be willing to absorb, absorb the full wrath of a holy God against our sins to make this our, our reality today and for all of eternity. And what we learn about the gospel is this. John Piper has this phrase. I think it actually might even be a book because John, John Piper, he sneezes out a book every two weeks. Anyways, um, he says God is the gospel. The gospel is not just the gospel is not just the forgiveness of sins because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. That's beautiful news, but that's the means to a greater end. The gospel is that we get God. The gospel is that sin no longer separates us from God. That's the beautiful, the beautiful news of the gospel. So if there's anyone here today, man, who's been wrestling with shame or self-hatred or condemnation or, or maybe believing lies about God's posture to them, I hope as I have, I mean, I got, I got red ink. This is scripture. This helps me. I have red ink all over this. This is God's word. 
And we see from Genesis to Revelation, God's relentless pursuit to what? To dwell in the midst of his people. And the best blessing, J.I. Packer says in his book, Knowing God, another book recommendation, says that the, the chief, the, one of the chief blessings of the gospel, the chief blessings of the work of Christ, is that we get adoption. It's not justification by faith. This is J.I. Packer talking, by the way. It's not just, not just justification by faith. It's that we, we get adoption. We're called sons and daughters of the living God. And he takes up what? He takes up residence in our hearts. Residence in our hearts. It's, it's stunning. And, and, and side note, and I'm going to share two more scriptures, and then we're going to wrap up here. The side note is this, is that, this is what I want to say, is that his indwelling presence is not abstract and theoretical. This isn't wishful thinking, church. This is actually reality. Yes, it's the truth of God's word, which means it's the truth of our, our, of our reality. What that means is God, is God is here right now, in us and among us. He's with us. You want to talk about how much more weight Romans 8 has? When it talks about God is with us, what could dare separate us? That really means that God is with us. His presence is with us. It's beautiful. And the reason why we see the Father's heart in John 14, 2 through 3, I had the honor of, of doing my, uh, my grandfather's graveside uh, service this Wednesday, and I, I, I preached from this verse. John 14, 2 through 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go, this is the work of Jesus preparing a place for us on the cross through his death and resurrection. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. Why? Why, Why does Jesus go through all of that? That where I am, you may be also. That where I am, you may be also. That's the heart of Jesus towards everyone who's here today and everyone who's watching this. Is that where you are is where Jesus wants to be. And he's died for God so loved the world. He died to make that a reality possible, that he can have a relationship with you, his presence can dwell with you, and he can radically transform your lives and cause a dead stone to have the breath of God through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit become a living stone that is going to live forever in the presence of God. That's our hope because of this precious cornerstone that was laid in Zion, Jesus Christ. And so my question, my challenge before I read Revelation 21 is this, is is church, do we believe this? Do we believe this? Do you believe this? The Father's heart for his kids, his posture, the work of Jesus for you. It's not, it's, 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 it's his love, his mercy, his grace, that where you and I are is where he wants to be. So may that bring sweet comfort to your souls that we are, we are God's spiritual house, the fort where the Father wants to just snuggle up with us and delight and have, and have mutual delight of each other, right? Worship, we worship him with devotion and love and adoration and he sings songs of victory and praise and love and adoration over us. It's forever, forever. Look at Revelation 21, one through four and I'll conclude with this. Notice at the beginning how I said Genesis to Revelation, this theme of God dwelling with man. Revelation 21, 1 through 4, this is what awaits us. This is our retirement plan, church. This is it. This is our retirement plan. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, that that sacred space where God was going to meet with his people, right? The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, behold what, church? The dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself 
will be with them as their God. Because he's so gracious and merciful and kind. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The former things have passed away. This is the goodness of God towards us, and Jesus Christ is the one who has made this possible. That forever, 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 God's people, you and I, will be dwelling in perfect peace and perfect fellowship in the presence of God, enjoying him for all of eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're just so amazed by your love and your grace and your mercy that you lavish upon us. He who has given us his son, how much more will he not give us all things? You are so good to us, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you help us, Lord, for, for those of us who, you know, this maybe is confusing or doesn't totally make sense or hasn't, hasn't shifted from our, our head to our heart. Holy Spirit, would you do that now? Would you speak? Would you let people know the reality, not the theory, the reality of your presence in them? The reality of your presence with us today? Would you help us to see the reality of your love for us? That where sin brought separation, you didn't forsake us, but you forsook your son on the cross so that we could dwell with you forever in your presence, both now and forevermore. Lord, the, the, the Bible you've given me, the word I got, shows us that you're crazy about us. You love us. Where we are is where you desire to be. So we're just blown away, Lord, that you would want to be with us. And so may your bride, the church, respond with worship and thanksgiving and gratitude that we are not left as orphans that we are not stuck in sin and separated from God and without hope in the world, but we have been shown the marvelous light of King Jesus reconciling us to God, who we're going to be hanging out with forever in perfect peace. Our sins forgiven. Death will be no more. Tears will be wiped away. No more stress. No more worry. No more pandemics. No more hatred. No more murder. Just perfect peace and perfect fellowship with you, Jesus. So, Jesus, you're the cornerstone. You made this all possible. So we just come before you and we say thank you for your mercy. We don't deserve it, but it's your mercy that you lavish upon us. And may you reawaken, Holy Spirit, your bride, to have your praise ever on their lips, that, we, that you would return awe and wonder to us. Where our hearts have grown dull, would you increase our adoration of you, Jesus? We pray this in your name. Amen.